let's get agreement that this is a strategic priority. That area of alignment and synergy can be very Looking important. The future, we're committed to expand valuation. time, there's still progress that needs to be made. This is Healthcare Strategies. Hi, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Olivia Kaler, Senior Editor of Life Science Intelligence and Pharma News Intelligence. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Maria Constantini Ferrando, Clinical Director and Reproductive Endocrinologist with Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey, and a licensed clinical psychologist. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's so great to have a specialist here today, and we were hoping that you could maybe explain what are the potential physical and mental effects of undergoing IVF. I'm sure it's very, very hard on these patients. Yes. In vitro fertilization or IVF is a very physically and emotionally draining process. From a very basic process, what it is, is a treatment where eggs from a woman are taken specifically from her ovaries and they're fertilized by sperm in a lab where they eventually develop into embryos with the purpose at one point to be used to be transferred back into the uterus with the hope of achieving a pregnancy and eventually leading to a very wanted child. The process is complex physically because it entails daily injections, it entails daily monitorings, going to a clinic, receiving ultrasounds, blood work, and waiting on a day-to-day basis from instructions from a nurse, which will lead to injections. And those injections are administered by the patient. Most of the time, sometimes a partner, if there is a partner, sometimes a friend, sometimes a nurse who comes to their house in the evenings. So it's a grueling process. And it's physically draining because it often necessitates repetition, having to do it more than once. And then, of course, going to the process where those embryos are put back, which is going to require more injections, more visits, more ultrasounds, more blood being drawn, etc. So physically is obviously grueling, but that's not all of it. In fact, it, to some degree, I would say it's certainly not most of it. The emotional toll that this process takes is truly what is most remarkable and really mind-boggling. For those who don't have any experience of it, it's hard to imagine, but for those who are in it, it is a day-to-day struggle. A uh, famous psychologist has called infertility as stressful as a diagnosis of cancer. Somebody may say, gee, how can a diagnosis of cancer compare to that? What is not physically potentially end your life, it will emotionally potentially do so. It is the threat of losing or potentially never having something that you've dreamed of from the very beginning of your life since you had a conscious thought and some sort of awareness of what a family, a child would be like. So it is equally devastating and is the fear of losing that hope that it becomes as stressful as the fear of potentially losing life. So while physically not the same, emotionally extremely very significant. And in terms of the range of emotions is hard to describe, but simply put, it encompasses any sort of human emotions that have to deal with fear, anxiety, anger, and most importantly, the loss of hope which is probably the most significant emotion that people experience along with isolation. Wow. That's a lot to unpack. A lot. It um, is. It is. Well, I do want to comment on the fact that 
these patients are still, you know, expected to perform naturally in their day-to-day life. You know, I'm sure some of these patients have full-time jobs and this is just added stress on their day-to-day life. So this is actually leading into my next question. How are these patients undergoing treatment treated for say anxiety or depression or any other mental health issue that they may have pop up? Are they often referred to a mental health specialist? I mean, you're a special doctor who has both credentials, but that may not be the case for every doctor, correct? Correct. Yes. And certainly I don't pretend to treat my patients who I see for infertility for psychological purposes, along with my infertility treatment. However, I am very cognizant of where they are. And that is probably one of the most important things about what we can do as infertility specialists, but that's for another conversation. So a good number of our patients, a good percentage of our patients come in already having some form of support. And from that, I'm referring to whether having a psychologist that they can talk to, a social worker that they can talk to, a psychiatric medication that they may need that they already have, or just having group supports, family supports, some form of emotional supports and friends or other patients that are undergoing the same type of treatment. Everyone who comes here is challenged from an emotional perspective. The diagnosis of infertility really throws your life upside down. And some people can cope better than others, but it's all within the normality of the human condition. It is normal. That's partly one of the things I try to stress so much to patients. It is normal to feel overwhelmed. It is normal to feel hopeless. It is normal to feel like you failed. It is normal to be scared. It is normal to be isolated. It is normal to be powerless and uh, having a sense of loss of control. These are normal emotional reactions. So it behooves us as treatment provider to be aware of that and to realize that we need to provide some level of support, potential treatment, less or more, more, more rigorous, depending on where the patient's are at. By the time patients come to us, they've already had six months to a year or several years of disappointment, of frustration, of bad news, of sadness, of inability to achieve the goal that they set out to achieve, right, which is ultimately to have a child. Or they had a child and they've not been able to have another one. Or they had a child and then they lost one. Wherever they come from, by the time they come to us, they're already in a position of distress. So we are just continuing to add more distress by the process that we engage in. It is part of the nature of what we do. We know it's going to be a stressful process. So how many people do we refer? Depends. Depends on the situation. If you come in and you already have a support that you need, you're not going to be referred to anyone. But if you don't, and we know there's a lot that's ahead for you, then we need to be aware of that and we need to be prepared. So whether we refer them to a social work depends on what their emotional state may be, whether we refer them to a patient navigator, for example, which is another form of support that we have. People who, by the time you come to see me, you see your nurse, you also have somebody else that you can talk to. They can help you through the process. They can engage with you when you're going through a difficult time and see if you need a referral to a social worker, see if your needs are being attended by your team, your doctor, your nurse, and they can refer you to uh, all sorts, sorts of resources that are available to to our patients and make sure you are put into contact with the right people for support. That's great. They are always made aware of the support resources that are available to us, which is patient navigators, acupuncture, nutrition referrals, 
groups that we know are available, resources in the community, online resources that are available. We make all our patients aware of those because regardless of how they're doing when they come in, regardless of how they're feeling the day they come to see me for the first time, they need to know this is available to them. Because one of the first things I will tell you people struggle with is a sense of isolation. They're the only ones who go through it. They don't talk about it with family. They don't talk about it with friends. Why? Because there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of quiet tolerance of this diagnosis, which is what makes a very difference from a cancer diagnosis. And so we want to make sure that that is available to them. If we feel, or if any of the staff member, whether it's me, or whether it's my nurse, whether it's a patient navigator, that the patient is struggling more than it is commonly seen, or if we feel like they're going through something, for example, if they're going through a loss, they will automatically be referred to psychological services, to a social worker team to evaluate the patients and determine if anything else is needed. But back to the point of the cancer versus this diagnosis is one of the things that makes infertility diagnosis so painful is the fact that there is a lot of shame around the diagnosis. When you have a medical illness of any other type, you will have the support you need. Family will support you because you, everybody will know. You will talk about it because you know people are going to give you support. But when you have a diagnosis of infertility, you don't want people to know because you feel you failed in some way, you're behind your peers, and you feel very uncomfortable and unwilling to share that with other people. And the additional piece to this is people don't know how to support sometimes. You know, they'll say, oh, don't worry about it. You just, just relax, you'll get there. And so sometimes as people try to support our patients and say kind things, they end up actually making the situation worse. And I won't even talk about how much more complicated it gets if the reason for the infertility happens to be a male, because then there's all these societal expectations on a male where they just feel absolutely incapable of sharing that with their peers and certainly unwilling to talk about it with anyone. In fact, they struggle even with us. That's a good point. I didn't consider the stigma surrounding infertility in that you're right. It probably would be very hard for a lot of these patients to say, talk to family members who never struggled with this type of problem before. And Correct. how do you relate to someone when you don't understand where they're coming from, right? Correct. You know, we always talk about one of the hardest times for infertility patients is the holidays where people get together, they have all these gatherings and they're like, oh, you guys, where's the baby? When are you guys going to have a baby? When are you guys going to get pregnant? Oh, you guys been trying, you know, and it's, it's just, <laughs> it's so overwhelming, you know, or it's a time where people gather and they bring their family and they bring their children and Johnny and Kathy just had a baby and how wonderful. And my cousin just comes with her second child and you're just had a loss or you just failed your IVF cycle. And how do you bring this up to people? You know, and, and people don't mean anything by it when they ask you, hey, when are you guys going to have a child? And they have no idea you've been trying for two and a half years. Or if they say, oh, just relax and you'll be fine. They don't mean anything by it, but they don't understand the complexity of what you're going through. And they don't understand how much you've been <laughs> trying to relax and you can't. <laughs> and the more you tell somebody to relax, the more they're not going to. So it's just a very vicious cycle. 
And what happens sometimes is we tell our patients, and I know a lot of our social workers tell our patients, it's like, you know what, you need to check out. You don't go to party or gatherings that are too difficult. And if it's, especially if it's the commemoration of a loss or right around Christmas time, you just lost the baby the year before. Those are times where you really do need to take care of yourself and do what's best for you. With men, it's so much more complicated because the one thing about women and women talk to each other. So while they may not necessarily talk to their friends because their friends have two kids or the other one has the third on, on the way or or whatever the situation may be, they gather there's fertility groups, there's women who talk to other women who are going through the same thing. Men don't do that. You don't tell the other guy, I have no sperm. <laughs> hey, by the way, you know, my sperm can't do such and such. This is not something that is talked about. The stigma behind that is even more significant than it is for women. So the machismo, whatever you want to call it, you know, of our society is something that men struggle with. We did a group a, a couple of years back, once a month, where it was a webinar for support. And every once in a while, we would have the, the men come on and they would talk about, on one hand, the shame, which is certainly a significant piece of it. But the other hand is, how do men cope with stress? Men cope by, by getting things done and taking care of things, right? So if their partner is struggling and they feel powerless, they feel completely disempowered. And so it complicates the relationship. It is a challenge to a relationship at all levels. Besides the, the individual stressor that each individual goes through is the stressor on the couple, whether it's male, female, whether it's female, female, male, male, whatever the situation is, it doesn't matter. It is always a strain on, on a couple. And if you're doing it alone, it's a different type of challenges, obviously, that you'll encounter. Sure, absolutely. So many factors that go into it. And it seems like these patients just have stress coming at them in all all angles, which is very unfortunate. It, it is, yes. Well, I'm sure, as you know, being a licensed clinical psychologist, many studies show cognitive behavior therapy works best with like medication in tandem versus just medication alone, right? Correct. Are patients ever prescribed any type of anxiety or depression medications while they're undergoing treatment? Does that affect them? <clears throat> they may. We obviously are not the one who prescribed those medications. Right. We shouldn't and we mustn't. But what we do do is we have, let's say, for example, we see a patient significantly struggling. We will refer them to our social worker. Our social worker will make an assessment. And that assessment will include whether or not the patient should be referred to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist will then evaluate the patient and we collaborate with many psychiatrists on, on patients. I still remember being a GYN resident at Cornell and I would be called in on a patient from the emergency room who just had, was in a car accident and she's pregnant and they call us, can we do a CAT scan? And I always thought that was the most funny question to ask we got to save mom, right? It's like, we have to save the mom. Of course you do what you have to do to save mom. And it's the same principle when we take care of our patient. Should we put her on medication? Well, if the patient is at risk as a significant depression, mom has to be alive. Mom needs to want to live. Yep. And if we're concerned about the safety of mom, then we have to act. And that's what psychiatrists do with us. They'll say, look, you know, I think this patient is well enough to be able to skip medication during the beginning of her pregnancy. She'll resume it at a certain point where it becomes safer to take the medication. 
we cannot do it if this patient is at risk. If a patient has, for example, a bipolar illness and she is at risk of a significant relapse, you don't want to expose the patient to that kind of risk because she's not going to be able to continue treatment. She's not going to be able to undergo anything. And so you will lose the patient in our priority as physician is do no harm. So we have to protect our patient. And it sometimes it necessitates stopping treatment. And sometimes we will off getting the patient pregnant until she's cleared by psychiatry. So we work very closely with the mental health team because our belief here, certainly in RMA, and certainly my belief is you take care of the whole patient. And the whole patient means physically and mentally, you cannot disengage those two. If you do, you will not do the patient's justice and you certainly will deliver suboptimal care. Right. Yeah. I wish all treatments considered the mental health of the patients as closely as IVF seems to be doing. Yeah, you're right. It is something that needs to be addressed. I I know having been in my prior days, in my psych days, having been a fellow at Sloan Kettering, I know they do it in the cancer world. They do pay attention to that. They do pay attention on the emotional ramification of a significant medical diagnosis. And I am very proud of the fact that we've really gotten behind them in terms of how seriously we take this because you have to, you will not succeed. It's not just a question of succeeding. Actually, you can still be successful, but the problem is the experience that the patient has during the treatment is very different if you don't address that component. And also, you have to understand when people ask, why do people drop off of IVF? Why is it that people sometimes give up? Well, people think it's just finance. It's not. I mean, obviously, the financial component is one of them. But guess what? The second most common reason why people drop off of treatment is emotional burden, psychological burden. So if a patient drops out of treatment, we can't help them. So our effort needs to be on making making sure we are addressing that component, treating it, taking it seriously, and respecting it as a significant part of what a patient goes through and helping them that way to stay engaged. And if they stay engaged, then they have a chance. If they have a chance, then we can help them make a change in their life and reach their goal. Good point. So as you said, number one reason for dropping out is price. So for the people who are struggling with fertility, IVF may be out of the question, right? Due to the pricing of just one cycle, which is roughly 12,000 on average, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Do any insurance plans cover IVF? Most insurance plans do, or maybe I shouldn't say most, but many insurance companies do. Some don't. You know, companies are are seeing that infertility treatment is one of those things that needs to be covered because it is a medical diagnosis. It's not just something that we made up for ourselves or our field made up so that patients would come to us. No, it's a fact. It is a common thing we see now more than ever. Why? Because women get pregnant older than they used to, right? Women used to get pregnant at 18, 19, 20. And while there may be some communities that still may support that, the reality that most don't. And women are out there, they're in the field, right? You and me are out there with our careers. And so you don't necessarily at 21 years old want to be having a child. But the problem is your ovaries doesn't care about that. (laughs) Your ovaries, your brain doesn't care whether you want to go pursue a career. And therefore, Ovarian aging is a fact of life that we cannot change. With all the science that we have, we have not been able to change that. Because of this, it's more common than it it ever used to be. And if you are covering treatment, you may be able to offer your employee the ability to get to the quickest treatment that's going to get you in and out faster and back to your job. 
as opposed to doing over and over and over treatment approaches that are cheaper, but not necessarily more successful, right? Which is going to keep you in treatment longer, is going to lead you to more failures, is going to lead you to more complications, and therefore away from work longer. So I think companies, insurance companies have sort of wisened up to that and now are more in favor of covering treatment, especially IVF. But obviously not everyone does, especially if you were working in a small company or you're self-employed, those obviously those situations, you're not going to get the coverage. So it's more complicated. We try to offer programs, either we have programs ourselves to sort of offer packages. We put our patients in touch with companies that offer packages to see if that can help them. We offer packages for people who want to freeze their aches if they're, you know, early 30s, because it's another big thing. It's like, don't forget, you're getting older. You don't necessarily have to give up all those aches that you have. While you still have them, you can put them away. It's a science that was not available when I was younger. When I was a fellow years ago, we used to talk to patients and say, you know, if you freeze eggs, maybe 40% of those will survive. So we knew you'd lose a lot. And, but that's all we had. And we started doing it for patients who had a diagnosis of cancer, who had to have their, their chemotherapy or some form of treatment that would lose the quality of the eggs they had or lose an ovary altogether, whatever the case may be. We would, we would do it for those kinds of patients. But now uh, our technology has improved to such a degree that we could say, hey, you know, 85% of your eggs will survive the thaw. So it's a very big difference. It's twice what it was before. So if, you, if you're saving some eggs, you know you're going to get most of those back. So now it makes more sense to save your eggs. And, and guess what? A lot of many companies now will pay for that because they want their young women to be focused on their career and, and producing and contributing to a company. So go freeze your eggs. It's only going to take a couple of weeks. You'll be back on the job right after, right? So that's what they're doing. So that's becoming a lot more popular now in terms of coverage. That makes sense too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, me being a young girl pursuing my master's and, you know, I'm not looking to have a child anytime soon. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, I do, I do worry what's going to happen with my eggs or, you know, if I'm going to have to turn to IVF. It's really nice that those options are out there. Exactly. I think now also, I don't want to get too political here, but as you have more women in leadership, there's a lot more support for this. And that's why there's also more coverage because people are thinking, oh yeah, I did it. And I want my staff, my employees to have the ability to do so, or I wish I could have done it. Like for me, I was thinking, gee, you know, if if in my twenties, I knew that was available, I would have done it. Why not? You know, it's just, but if you're going to invest thousands and thousands of money all the time, then obviously you're going to think about a little bit more. So it's important to offer young women opportunities to be able to, a good number of patients who come in, come in and they have the backup of their company not some don't obviously but uh, but many do and which has been you know exciting to see because 10 years ago it was just you just never heard of it right yeah it'll be cool to see the transition of the companies who adopt this practice yes well I know you said you didn't want to get too political but I'm gonna get (laughs) political how is the political uncertainty surrounding reproductive rights impacting equity and access to IVF the Roe versus Wade ruling being overthrown obviously that has sent a a wave of distress, <laughs> anxiety, further increase the level of stress that our patients already experience. The question is, how do you define life, the beginning of life? How do you define the beginning of personhood, right? Is it at the moment of fertilization? Does it happen after? Does it happen when you implant the embryo? Does it happen when the baby's born? You know, when does it happen? Sure. And so far, 
we have not seen a direct impact on this, but obviously because all those questions can be brought into the forefront and challenged, that could indirectly affect what we do, right? We can end up being in a situation where you are not able to select an embryo. A lot of what we do is a numbers game. So as fertility specialists, when we have a patient undergo IVF, Our goal is to try and get as many embryos as possible, but not for the sake of having extra embryos, but because we know that an embryo is not a child, because we know that many of those embryos are not going to be viable. Many of those embryos are not going to be compatible with life. So our goal is not just, oh, let's just do an IVF cycle, get an embryo, and then we'll do another IVF cycle, get another embryo, and then a third IVF cycle and get another embryo, right? We just talked about the cost of this process. The goal of IVF is to minimize the number of times you're putting a patient through it which is very different than, oh, I don't want too many embryos. It's quite the opposite. You want to try and convey all the efforts into one cycle because it is physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and financially draining. So it is your responsibility, it's your duty to your patient to try and do that. But because of that, you may end up having extra embryos. And so then what? Somebody's going to tell me, oh, well, she has an embryo there that's abnormal. Well, she has to put it back. And if you don't, you know, you are against the law, we're going to put you in jail if you don't have to approve that. Or are you going to come and tell me that the patient has a a pregnancy in the tube and because she's not dying, I can't go get rid of that pregnancy? Those are the things that are frightening. And maybe they'll never happen in states like New Jersey and New York. Well, let's say she's in some states where you can't treat a patient with an atomic pregnancy because it's against the law. Then a patient comes here to be treated. Then am I considered against the law because I'm treating a patient from a state where that's not legal? I mean, the ramification of the way in which this thing can become impossible is frightening. Ultimately, when a physician is forced to provide a treatment based on anything other than a medical recommendation, that physician is at a disadvantage and really going against the Hippocratic Oath, which is what we swear by when we become physicians. So if you're telling me I should not be doing what I think is best for the patient because of legal, political, social, economic, whatever those issues are, you are tying my hands and you're making me into a bad physician. You are not just preventing healthcare, you're compromising, you're compromising healthcare and you are offering to patients bad medical care. We don't practice that kind of care. We are in a country where we are known for the excellence in medical practice and our center is known for the excellence of the medical care it provides. This is one of the top institutions in the world and We cannot in any way ever provide medical care other than based on medical evidence and doing the right thing for the patient. Doing what's right for the patient is the only standard of care that should ever be used, period. No other, there's no other people involved in that, in that relationship, no lawyers, no politicians, nothing, no one, that's all. If you're an engineer and you have to build a bridge And you're like, okay, these are the standards I have to follow so that when people drive over this bridge, the whole thing doesn't collapse. And you say, well, before you do that, let me just make sure that those individuals are okay with this. Because if they're not, then we can't do it. The bridge is going to collapse. People are going to (laughs) die. You have to do what you're trained to do. And there should be nothing else that guides you when you're coming up with decisions that have to do with people's lives. Nothing should interfere with that because it's going to inevitably lead to loss of lives, 
And as the example of an ectopic pregnancy, if, if I wait until the patient is bleeding and about to die, I could lose the patient. And for what reason? For legal, social, political reasons? That is not what guides a decision and it should never do that. But my hope is it doesn't, it, my true hope is that we will never come to that. I believe in this country and I believe that we will be able to survive this. I believe we'll be able to prevail as well. Yes. I have faith in our women and yes, I, do too. Um, I think we know what we want. And you know what, if we want to have a career and a baby, we're going to get it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And you know what, there's nothing wrong with that. There's exactly. nothing wrong with that. I have there's a, not. you know, I have a 22 year old daughter and I stand in front of her and, you know, I'm proud of her. And I say, you know, you go out there and you live your life and you, you do what you think is right for you. Believe in yourself. Don't let anybody get in your way and don't let anyone tell you what you can or cannot do. So staying within reason, obviously, but you know, that, that's, that's the whole point, right? For the generations to come, they, they're going to look at us and look at how we've handled this situation. And this is going to set standards for the future. So we, we are role models for the younger generation. So we have to do the right thing. It's a, it's, it's a responsibility, not just to our patients, but to our future generations. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Constantini Ferrando, thank you so much for setting aside the time today to join us on Healthcare Strategies. This was an incredibly insightful conversation. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Well, thank you. Listen, obviously you may probably tell that I'm very passionate about this. I'm a very big believer in supporting our patients. Women's health has been my passion for as far as I can remember. But, you know, this involves the men too, and I don't want them to feel left out. It's really about the patient. We treat infertility. So obviously that is the area of medicine that is most dear to us but we believe in doing what's right for the patient. We bring families, we give people hope. We want them to realize their dream. And these should be the only standards. These should be our only goals and politics and legalities should not interfere with any of this. It's about what's right for the patient. And that's all that matters. You're just heroes in lab coats is all you guys are, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Appreciate the time you gave me. So thank you. And for our listeners, feel free to reach out to us at A-K-A-Y-L-O-R at extelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts on today's topic. You can also use that email to share any healthcare-related questions or stories that you would like us to consider covering. And if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give us a five-star review if you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you later. This has been an Extelligent Healthcare Media production. 